0: This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study.
1: Welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today, January 22nd, 2023, with Matthew Wickman. Um, I'm sitting here in Southern California today, unusual location for me, about 40 miles southeast of Monterey Park, and I'm sort of shocked by the shootings overnight. I don't know much. I can't think of any good words except to call us all to mourn with those that mourn this morning. Um, Just, just, I mean, I'm safely away, but close enough to be, to feel personally affected. But I know this is uh, at least national news. And and I'm uh, invite us to mourn with those that mourn. And with that, uh, began our program. Um, this is our second session of 2023. We, um, for purposes of tracking with the Come Follow Me program, the scripture reading for this session, although not necessarily what we cover in uh, any one session is is the first chapter of John, um, Matthew chapters three and four, and Luke chapters three, four, and five. That just places us in in the year. I'm Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation. I'm joined by Rebecca Deschweinitz, also of the Dialogue Foundation and uh, board, and uh, Michael Austin is running the technology in the background. We are using the webinar format on Zoom, and we are running a live stream on Facebook and recording this program so that you're aware of that. Um, As a plug for Dialogue, uh, let me remind everybody that Dialogue is uh, 55 years of publication in the uh, Mormon world, and uh, we have recently made all of Dialogue, all 55 years available free online, including new issues and all of our digital programming. Um, As a result, we are always raising money, always trying to make this work as a free online, completely digital um, offering. And uh, I invite you to help us do that and continue that in uh, some easy ways, are to simply subscribe to the paper. That's still a significant contribution, or to subscribe, but not take the paper, but, uh, but make that a contribution at the amount of a subscription. Today, um, to our program, I'm pleased to introduce Matthew Wickman. Matthew Wickman is a professor of English and founding director emeritus of the BYU Humanities Center. Last year, his book, Life to the Whole Being, the Spiritual Memoir of a Literature Professor, was published in the Maxwell Institute's Living Faith series. Uh, Once an avid surfer, now consigned to watching surf videos from his landlocked home in Salt Lake City. Um, He lives in Salt Lake City with his wife, Carrie, and they are the parents of two daughters. Matthew has invited Catherine Isaac and Abby Thatcher to join us today. Um, they will both participate and offer prayers. In uh, I'm going to use Matthew's words to introduce them. Uh, he, he introduces them as, as good friends. And uh, Catherine says this. Catherine or Katie Isaac is my colleague in the College of Humanities, teaching courses in literature, writing, interdisciplinary humanities and general education. Abby Thatcher graduated from BYU last year and is now in the first year of her PhD program in English at UC Berkeley. Um, I invited Katie and Abby into the meeting because I have learned from them and their spiritual intelligence complements their high intellects. As with every speaker and every participant, we invited Matthew, Catherine and Abby today for their personal insights and for their voices. And None of us and none of them are speaking for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or for BYU or for UC Berkeley or for the Dialogue Foundation. Although I suppose I am speaking for the Dialogue Foundation, uh, since that's my job today. Um, We are going to now begin with What Wondrous Love Is This? Musical rendering and then ask Katie Isaac to offer an opening prayer.
2: Our Father in heaven we are so grateful to have the blessing to gather in this sacred space to set aside this time to learn and to teach one another we invite thy spirit to be with us today we pray and mourn with those in Monterey park those affected by the violence there, those affected by fear and violence throughout our world. As ambassadors of Christ, as image bearers of Christ here on this earth, we ask for extra strength and love as we go forward, that we may bring compassion and empathy and God's love to all of our siblings on this earth to those whom we come in contact with, to any that we can positively help or affect. We are grateful for thy word. We are grateful for scripture. And we're grateful for the opportunity it gives us to continually learn and listen to the Spirit. Please bless our efforts in this. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Amen.
3: All right, is it to me? I guess Matthew, so. you're on, yes. All right, uh, thank you. I want to begin just by thanking uh, warmly uh, Rebecca Schweinitz for inviting me to do this, for Chris and Mike and everybody at Dialogue who arranges these uh, Come Follow Me discussions. Um, this is going to proceed mostly presentation style with occasional very necessary interventions uh, from uh, the panelists. And of course, I understand there's a chat function and Rebecca or Chris can, can bring some of the comments to bite if, if they see fit. Here's what we're going to do today. Uh, by the way, you should know I'm not a Bible scholar, but I am a bibliophile. I, I, I love books in general, and I love these books in the Bible, especially the gospel narratives. They're my favorite books of scripture. I, I, I love them. What we're going to do, we're going to begin by discussing a little couple of passages in Mark chapter 1, uh, which introduces some, some key, um, uh, key concepts. Um, from uh, key narratives, really, in the early ministry of Christ. And then we're going to turn to Matthew and Luke, primarily, to look at three different episodes. I want to discuss the baptism of Christ and the temptation in the wilderness, uh, Christ's temptation in the wilderness, and then uh, his calling of the disciples, especially uh, Peter. And then we'll spend a little time at the back end of the lesson on John 1, outside the synoptic Gospels. Um, There's Finding a theme through all this uh, is not easy or obvious, uh, there is a kind of an episodic quality to a lot of these gospel narratives. Um, And they kind of move from story to story and scene to scene and sermon to sermon. Um, But there is kind of a kind of an implicit thematic through line, I think, inside of these narratives. And that is the theme of uh, metanoia, uh, which is a term that is translated as repentance, but has connotations that are really far-reaching and self-implicating. And that pertains not only to sin, uh, but also to who we conceive Christ to be and therefore who we conceive of ourselves to be um, as would-be disciples of Christ. So begin in Mark. Um, I'm not going to go into much detail about the textual history and evidence about Mark. There are other people, scholars, who are better than that. But I will go uh, here to this um, observation by Eugene Peterson, a Presbyterian uh, minister. Uh, and he's, he wrote a great uh, kind of an encapsulation, a summary of the of the New Testament, a kind of a paraphrase of the Bible, actually, called The Message. Here's how he summarizes um, uh, the book of Mark. He says, Mark wastes no time getting down to business. It's a single sentence introduction, not a digression to be found from beginning to end. An event has taken place that radically changes the way we look at and experience the world, and he can't wait to tell us about it. There's an air of breathless excitement in nearly every sentence he writes. The sooner we get the message, the better off we'll be. For the message is good, incredibly good. God is here, and he's on our side. Um, the book of Mark is kind of a foundational narrative for um, Matthew and Luke, and Mark moves very rapidly uh, through the scenes he presents. Mike, go to the next slide if you would. If you look just at chapter one, uh, you get a sense for this, right? Um, G- John the Baptist is preaching, and Jesus is baptized, then Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And then Jesus begins his ministry and calls his disciples. And then he begins preaching and heals a man with an unclean spirit. And then he heals others, including Peter's mother. And then he uh, preaches throughout Galilee. And then at the end, he heals a leper. All these things, only a few verses each, giving it that kind of breathless, rapid quality Peterson's talking about, right? This this really good message. I want to look at just the two brief episodes in this first chapter of Mark that set a really important stage for us. Um, can you go to the next slide, uh, Mike? Uh, verses 23 through 27. Can I ask one of the panelists just to read for those who don't have scriptures at home and aren't open, you can see it on the screen, let's kind of take it also at the pace of speech. Um, would one of you panelists uh read these verses right here? I can do that. Thanks, Abby.
4: And there was in the synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him.
3: Okay. That that verse 27 is a key kind of a verse in Mark. They were all amazed, right? As much as they questioned among themselves, saying, what thing is this? Can we go one more slide over and then look at that um, story, and then we'll talk about the both together. This is the next one. Katie, you want to get these here, Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 40 to 42?
2: And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will, be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed.
3: Okay, great. I've got some things, a couple things to say about this, but before I say anything, any panelists want to sort of say anything that sort of jumps out to you about these mm. two episodes in the book of Mark? This is not, it's not a demand, but if, if you have something, you want to sort of any insights you have, I'd love to hear them here.
4: I love the sense that as soon as he had spoken or previously, um, as soon as Christ had said um, the healing words, that there's an immediacy to it. And there's also a um, incredible amount of dialogue going on within the verses and a sense that this is an ongoing conversation that has the power to work miracles.
3: Lovely. Thank you. Ongoing conversation with the of the power to work miracles. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, let me mention a couple of things here about these about these two passages. And the first one there, uh, t- verses twenty three to twenty seven. You know, the wonder that Jesus causes. Uh, a couple of Bible commentators pointed this out is not so much that an unclean spirit comes out of someone, but it's the way that Christ gets the spirit out. Um, Christ did not exorcise any kind of demon through some kind of incantation or dramatic performance. There's no screaming, no yelling, no dancing, no raising or waving the arms. He speaks a word, and the demons immediately depart. In the second case here, in this one with the healing of the man with leprosy, um, verse 41, Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. Here, Jesus shows no concern for disease, no concern for ceremonial uncleanness. So the, the manner of healings here are really quite profound and quite unique. In the first case, Jesus stands above uh, the evil, uh, and he doesn't sort of descend into it, to try to exercise the demon out of it. He's kind of above it. He stands above what's evil, but in the second case, He stands with those who are outcasts. He stands with the leper. Um, So the whole manner by which he's effectuating his miracles is just so different. What manner of man is this? It's a a very profound way of introducing who Christ is. This is not your grandfather's rabbi, I think, is the message here that Mark is communicating. So with that in mind, um, let's go to uh, Michael, the next slide. We'll take up here the story of Jesus' baptism. Um and and we won't read all these verses. I'll just look at a couple here in the first eight verses of Luke. Um, You have Luke kind of setting the stage. He mentions uh Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod and Philip and verse two, you have Annas and Caiaphas of the high priests, you know, as, and here's what picks up the word of God came unto John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, and he came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Okay, this phrase, baptism of repentance, this is in the, in the Greek, baptism of metanoia. And that, as far as what that means, you would go to the next slide, um, Mike. Some of you may remember uh, President Nelson's talk in the April 2019 General Conference. This is in the priesthood session. Um, And he talks a bit about this term metanoia. I'm quoting here President Nelson. The word for repentance in the Greek New Testament is metanoio. The The prefix meta means change. The suffix noio is related to Greek words that mean mind, knowledge, spirit, and breath. Thus, when Jesus asks you and me to repent, he's inviting us to change our mind, our knowledge, our spirit, even the way we breathe. He's asking us to change the way we love, think, serve, spend our time, treat our wives, teach our children, and even care for our bodies. Um, you know, I love the implications here of um, uh, President Nelson's interpretation. And I love, by the way, there was a Greek etymology discussion in general conference. More of that, please, right? That'd be great. I'd like more of that. Um, repentance here is not just asking forgiveness or turning away from specific sins. It's a more holistic reformation of a way of life. It affects how we love, think, serve, spend our time, treat each other, care for our physical as well as spiritual well-being. It's as much bigger than just telling the Lord or others that we're sorry for specific misdeeds and try not to do them again. I'd add here a couple nuances to to this term metanoia. This Greek prefix meta can mean change. But it also can mean something that transcends or encompasses here. So metanoia can mean that which transcends or encompasses our sense of mind or our state of being. Um, It's pointing to a way of reflecting or taking stock of who and what we most essentially are. So that to repent is to grasp more completely our state of mind and being. Uh, It's to undergo a change. Um, on the basis of having some insight into what might be different in us, as to have some new possibility revealed to us, so that to repent is to have a vision of who or what we might be, and then seek to realize that vision to that extent, true repentance is a product of and a conduit for the revealed word of God, right. The ability to repent comes to us as revelation from God. We should be different. And then how we move forward um, comes with through further um revelation from God about whom what we might be. And that word is revealed to us again by uh by Christ. Um I appreciate um this uh thought from the Come Follow Me Manual. This is the next slide, uh Mike, um, which reads, um, Jesus Christ and his gospel can change you. Luke quoted uh, an ancient prophecy of Isaiah that described the effect that the Savior's coming would have. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough way shall be made smooth. This is a message for all of us, including those who think they cannot change. If something as permanent as a mountain can be flattened, then surely the Lord can help us straighten our own crooked paths as we accept John the Baptist's invitation to repent and change, we prepare our minds and hearts to receive Jesus Christ so that we can see the salvation of God. Um, so to go to the next slide, Mike, we're back in the Luke chapter 3 setting for all this. And maybe again, we could, how are we doing for time? We're doing pretty well. If we could have um, a panelist uh, just just read this here, these, these verses, uh, Luke uh, chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. Thanks, Rebecca.
0: Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which which, which bringeth not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise." Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, exact no more than that which is appointed to you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, and what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages.
3: Thank you much. Okay, uh, the panelists here, do you have any, before I've got, A few thoughts here on this before I get to mine. Any thoughts that you have here about what's being said, how it's being said, what's being communicated here, what this baptism of repentance means here in Luke chapter 3?
2: When I read through this, I was thinking that in the middle of this passage, uh, where we kind of get this, John giving them this comeuppance, right? Don't just say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. This notion of getting too caught up in this we are the chosen people idea, where this seems to be a moment where he says, it's not about passively being a chosen people. It is about you choosing God. And then how do we know you have chosen God? Because we see that in what you do, and deliberately how you go about your life, the way that you don't extort people, the way that you serve the poor and the vulnerable. That is how we see that you are a chosen people, because you have made that choice to follow Christ in that way, but you can't simply rest and say, we're the insiders, we're the chosen ones.
3: That's a great point. Yeah, it's not about identity, right, as we're chosen. It's about what we're doing. That, it's great, Katie. Thank you so much. Anybody else have two cents here that you want to add? I'm just, I, really,
0: I'm just really struck by this notion of um, the good fruit. Like, how do you show that you're chosen, um, that you're bringing forth this fruit, fruit that's worthy of repentance? And as we're thinking about kind of this more expanded idea of repentance, I think that takes on and then new meaning, um, you know, is the fruit worthy? Is it reflective of this change of this, um, you know, are we, yeah, anyway. That's yeah,
3: it. Yeah, it's great. I love that. In fact, just a couple of words here on that, you know, that uh, there are commentators uh, that talk about um, uh, John speaking here with the authority of a wilderness prophet, called a wilderness prophet. Um and he's speaking prophetic discourse and, and, and in, in the greater sort of Christian world, prophetic discourse is a term that speaks to social reform. And, and social reform, it's not that social reform is more important than spiritual reform per se. It's that spiritual reform really isn't possible without also some kind of change in how we treat each other in our in our social lives, right? We need according to John here, more equality, more honesty, less violence. Uh, If we're to live worthy of the repentance, right, this metanoia uh, that John is preaching and that Jesus will embody. Um, This is why a lot of commentators describe John's voice as coming out of the peasantry, right, Uh, set against rulers like Herod, who will have John uh, beheaded, as we'll get to in a few weeks, right, in the the gospel narratives. Um, uh, Did you have something you wanted to add, Chris, uh, before I go on? I'd love to hear any comments
1: of yours. I, I did. I because I'm an old tax lawyer. I always pick up the line about about publicans, yeah. and it strikes me that what John says is when he says "exact no more than which, that which is appointed," you is it makes me stop to think. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? And then I go back to all of the things he said, and there. There is a negative implication in everyone, which is this is just isn't this just obvious? Isn't this just the way you should live? But you're not yeah. the the negative implication. But you're you are collecting more than you're appointed. You are hanging on to both coats. You are not giving of your meat to the poor. Uh, that negative implication goes back through the whole uh, set of verses here.
3: Yeah,
0: it's the, gener- it's the generation of vipers,
3: right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, these are, these are great insights. Thank you. One thing about that Herod bit, right? About John being kind of the antithesis to Herod. Herod here is a historical figure. Um, but Herod here is also something of a state of mind, uh, a state of society. It's a way of being. Um, to be like Herod is to be power-hungry and elitist and proud, um, prejudiced violent. Um, When I think about my own habits of mind, I note that I spend a lot of time fighting my own Herodian tendencies. I think probably a lot of us do, um, whether it's from pride or insecurity or trauma or um, cultural mores for how we arrive in society um, or desires to fit in and be liked or to justify our good fortune and so on. Um, This is what John is preaching against. Right, to give up these habits of mind and these ways of life uh, is to accept this baptism of repentance. Um, and, and, and Chris pointed, I think, really insightfully, that, that, that there's kind of a negative thing here. He's saying, don't do this thing. Do the opposite thing. Do the opposite thing. And then Christ comes forward to embody not just a negative, don't do this, but to show us be like this, be like Christ. So let's go to the next slide, if we could, Mike. And we'll turn here to the Matthew version of this account, the baptism And this um, will be the actual baptism itself. So can I have another reader here for this uh, passage? I can do it. Thank you.
4: Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.
3: Thank you. Again, first word here to the panelists. If there are things that jump out at you here, I'd love to know what those things are. And if not, you know, I have a few thoughts. If I didn't, I wouldn't be turning us here. I can, I can fill any gap, but any, any thoughts you have, I'd love to hear them.
2: I have always loved how incredulous John seems to be asked to baptize this perfect person. And what I love is the fact that, um, when you had mentioned that, you know, Jesus comes and he really does turn the world upside down. The things you thought were power are not power. The things you thought were success are not success. And the fact that he, he submits himself to be baptized by someone who, I mean, John humbly acknowledges, I am less, so far less than you. The fact that he submits to that, that he feels to make this public declaration of his obedience to God, again, just kind of flips that idea of power on its head, that the greatest is servant among you, that the greatest submits, that the greatest is humble, and none of the worldly power structures work that way
3: and jesus will say power is not what you thought it was i love that thank you
1: I i have if i could share i always i have the reaction with the very fast verse 13 14 um what's like an instantaneous recognition a almost a jealousy um how how did he know how could he know um How could I know? I guess it turns into, how could I know on first meeting? And that's it. Yeah, that's great.
3: I love it. You know, John, you know, is initially refusing to baptize Jesus. For Jesus is the contrary. John's preaching the baptism of repentance. And here comes the man who has no need for repentance. He's the person outside the paradigm. Uh, John's talking to everybody but this, right? Uh, But this person in some respects. Um, But Jesus insists on being baptized to give us a perfect kind of a sublime example of how to be. And I love the words here that come from the father, right? Um, uh, Thou, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In Luke's account, the voice comes and speaks directly to Jesus. Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. In the the Matthew account, though, it's a public witness, a public declaration from the father. This is the one. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Um, and then I love how the spirit enters here, right. Uh, in descending like a dove you read, right. Which is to say it's ascending gently, uh, peacefully. Uh, what's often described as a still small voice alighting on Jesus in this still small way. And if we reflect again on this idea of this baptism of metanoia, of total change, right. Temporal and spiritual, um, by following Christ, um, Think about how vital the spirit is uh, to that process. Now, I worry that sometimes we, we, um, we parochialize or limit the spirit by reducing it to being merely a prompter of action and a witness of truth. I mean, vitally, the spirit prompts good actions. Vitally, the spirit witnesses to what is true. But the spirit does um, so much more than that. Now, I've spoken and written about this next um, it's on the quote of the next slide. I'm going to go there, Mike, uh, now, um, before. So forgive me for repeating myself. But I love what Parley P. Pratt um, says about the, um, about the gift of the Holy Ghost, right, that follows our baptism when we're confirmed members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He says this, the gift of the Holy Ghost quickens all the intellectual faculties, increases, enlarges, expands, and purifies all the natural passions and affections and adapts them by the gift of wisdom to their lawful use. It inspires, develops, cultivates, and matures all the fine-toned sympathies, joys, tastes, kindred feelings, and affections of our nature. It inspires virtue, kindness, goodness, tenderness, gentleness, and charity. It develops beauty of person, form, and features. It tends to health, vigor, animation, and social feeling. It invigorates all the faculties of the physical and intellectual person. It strengthens and gives tone to the nerves. In short, it is, as it were, marrow to the bone, joy to the heart, light to the eyes, music to the ears, and life to the whole being. If you think about metanoia, about what it means to repent and enter into new life in Christ, um, you can see how vital the Spirit's presence is, right? Helping us make the kinds of changes we need to make, a continual change, sometimes really difficult, disruptive change in order to keep our covenants, in order to enter into the way and become more like Christ. Um, the Holy Ghost influences all these things. It influences what we love in the world um, and how we're able to draw close to it and love it. it builds qualities of character. Um, It affects our physical and social well-being. It animates our intellects, really every aspect of ourselves. The Holy Ghost is what's given to us as a function of receiving this baptism of metanoia. And it's the key to an ongoing process of repentance and change and transformation. Um, It's the holistic gift, um, the perfect complement to making the kind of change that Jesus preaches are that John preaches and that Jesus exemplifies. Um, on that note, can we go to the next slide, the next episode here, which is um, the temptation. This is 11 verses. Um, for time, we might I may cut this down a little bit and just ask you to remember how this goes. And, and the panelists, I'll ask you in a minute whether you have thoughts about this. Uh, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted uh, for 40 days and nights. In the Joseph Smith Translation, That's a bit different. It's that Jesus is led by the Spirit of God to be with God, uh, but led by the Spirit to be with God. And then he's tempted after that's over. And there's a a really important insight there, uh, I think, in the Josephine translation, and that um, that kind of captures the dynamics of spiritual life pretty well, right? You know, um, where temptation often follows a spiritual high, and it's an important process of sanctification. It's about learning how to cleave to God, even amid temptations and distresses and suffering and difficulties and seasons of loss and all the rest of it. I'm going to stick here to the Matthew, the King James version of this for a minute, because there's some other things that come out in this particular version of the narrative. Um, the first two is kind of funny, King James. and When he had fasted 40 days and more days, he was afterward and hungered. He wasn't hungered, right? There's a gentle way. The NRSV, the new uh, revised standard, translates as, after, he was famished. They say he was, he was famished, right? As you imagine, he would be after a, a lengthy fast. And here comes the tempter saying, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And Christ rebuffs that, right? Man shall not, not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then the devil takes up into the holy cities of Jerusalem Sets upon the pinnacle of the temple and says, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it's written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up. Let's say, back dash, uh, they foot against a stone. Next slide, if you would, Mike. Uh, and then Jesus says, you know, dash on the temple, Lord thy God. And then Jesus is taken to a high mountain, and he's shown the kingdoms of the world, kind of in a visionary manner. And the devil saith to him, all these things will I give thee, thou fall down and worship me. And Jesus saith, get thee hence Satan, um, for it's written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, him only shalt thou serve. And then the devil leaves him and come angels to minister. Okay, these temptations, right? Turn turn stone into bread. Um, catch yourself out of the temple and the angels catch you. And then here it kings of the earth, that all the power can be yours. Panelists, um, any significance you see? Uh, in these kinds of temptations anything you want to bring out of this uh, story
4: I um, I think that the use of the word if um, again and again I think it was James E. Talmadge in Jesus the Christ who talks about the insidious nature of that word um, and the way that it shows up at key moments in Christ's life here in the temptations and then later at the cross um, and that sense of uh, appealing and tempting one's pride to to prove the truth to everyone of what he had just heard at his baptism, that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that um, the tricky nature of if and uh, and appealing to that sense of, of, uh, of needing to prove the validity of what we've witnessed or experienced privately to the public as a way to kind of affirm, publicly affirm a faith that, um, that Christ recognizes here has no place in the public, at least not yet, and certainly not in the way that, that Satan has, but instead um is entirely meant to uh to remain outside of of the world and outside of the world's conversations about what is or is not valid power or a valid identity.
3: Great point. Thank you very much, uh, Abby. Um, on this, there was a point that a gospel commentator named David Turner made a very good observation just in line with the the Talmudge point here about the insidious nature of the if. That's a great phrase, Abby. Uh, And he points out that the devil doesn't tempt Jesus to doubt his sonship only to misuse it selfishly, right? That that if you're the son of God, show what you can do. Show what you can do. And, And there's a great commentary by the Uh, Protestant theologian Stanley Hauerwas on the book of Matthew. And he says that the third temptation, right, about the the kings of the world, um, this is Hauerwas' words, makes explicit what's been at stake in the first two temptations, namely the connection between worship and politics. Jesus refuses to worship the devil and thus becomes the alternative to the world's politics based on sacrifices to false gods. Kind of a poignant observation, I think, of how our is there. Um, and it puts me in mind, again, of this whole idea of metanoia, this change of mind, of habit, of life. Um, I don't know about your experience, but in mine, um, I find God to be a brilliant contrarian. Um, I find that when I seek God's inspiration, when I seek his input, um, that he will, um, uh, I seek his will for my life, he will always affirm is love for me, and my value as a child of God, but then reveal in some way or other my complacent habits of thinking, uh, limits of my understanding, uh, my laziness, perhaps, in assessing a situation, perhaps buried contempt, I feel, for those who think differently from me. Let's be in the mind of a story of um, someone I served with in a calling a few years ago. I was in a state presidency, in this other person had a state calling. He was not the state president and wasn't the other counselor, but had a stake assignment. And I worked with him quite a bit. And before the 2016 election, we were talking and he was um, scandalized to learn that I was, I was going to be voting for Hillary Clinton. And I was scandalized that he was scandalized. And, 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 um, and, and, uh, and then when uh, Trump won the election, I was, I was of course more scandalized as, you know, a softy lefty like me would be whatever, right. you yeah. know. And, and those, those were tough times. Um, but over the course of the next few years, you know, we both still had these callings and served alongside has other very, very closely. And I came to recognize some things about him that were really important. Um, I began to see him as an exceptionally loyal and dependable and service-oriented uh, person with so many virtues that I would be wise to emulate. And I never felt like his politics should be my politics. There's a a lesson I learned in there was important. And that is that mixed in with my politics was almost for me, I'm not talking to everybody else, but for me, almost a kind of idolatry, a kind of a a worship of a way of life and thinking um, that brought with it or revealed rather a set of associated vices, right? A, a, A way of oversimplifying how others thought and felt, a fear in me um for what was happening in the world around me uh, a kind of a contempt i felt uh, for certain kinds of attitudes a lack of faith i felt in in god um and in the future for that matter and and that this way of thinking of me was unbecoming of someone who wanted to be a disciple of christ um i could provide lots of examples for ways also i've not quite measured up to standing up to temptation the way that christ does here um but I, I would just point out that in this episode, we see iconically Jesus responding to situations, you know, misuse of power to satisfy bodily need, um, misuse of power, I and mean, even of sacrilege, right, to prove things about the divine son he wants, misuse of his powers to acquire worldly power, um, that the, all these things in us can be sources of um, even in our best intentions um, and our well-meaning habits um, can become misguided in us and that Christ is the iconic example of how to, again, seek this deeper change. And on that subject, um, uh, I'd like to turn just for one at a time to the next episode in um, Luke 5. If we could, although I should ask first, before we go there, anything that any of the panelists want to say about this temptation in the wilderness before we leave it all together?
2: I'll just very quickly throw in there. There's some great parable or great parallels because we have this happen in the wilderness to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Yes. Uh, Yes. The 40 days, the 40 years, and it is kind of like all the temptations that beset the children of Israel and it goes wrong. This seems to be the parallel story showing you and here is the model for when it goes right.
3: That's a great point. Exactly right. And, and there's, some, in fact, several commentators talk about that fact. Jesus is the consummately obedient child of God, right? And it kind of resets the Israel narrative on a different path, right, is what is happening here. Yeah, thank you, Katie. It's great insight. Okay, let's go to the next slide, Mike, and, and talk then about this uh, calling of Peter. And this is worth. Okay, we're getting toward the back end the, at the time that I am. I'm pressed like this, but I'm going to church uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, but I want to go over a couple more passages. This is one of them um, that's worth looking at. Again, I'll, I guess I'll look at just a couple of verses for just one of time. So um, people are pressing forward to hear the word of God, uh, the Lake of Genseray and, and there are two ships there, and there are fishermen. And Christ, in verse he gets in one of the ships, which is Simon's, and says, go out a little bit. And, and, and he goes out. Uh, Peter does uh, into um, into the into the lake uh, a little ways. And then um, verses four and five, I find so poignant, right? Now, when he had left speaking, is he, Jesus, left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering said unto him, master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Okay, that suite of progress, a command, um, launch into the deep, let down your nets, followed by a statement of human experience, right? Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. And then the gesture of faith, nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. I always pause over the, that, that, that line, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Um, you know, So often when some kind of prompting comes to us in our lives, it could be a spiritual prompting. It could be a calling that we're given. It could be an incident within our relationships with friends or family or co-workers when we are compelled to do something difficult. When we resist that thing, there's often a wealth of human experience that explains why we are resistant. Um, There is hurt. There's bad experience. um, There's some trauma often for lots of us. Um, There's failed expectation, disillusionment, disappointment. Um, This makes Peter's words, I think, all the more poignant. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net, right? Um, This is what it means to have faith in Christ. This is what the baptism of metanoia or change means. It's a capacity to recognize the word of God when it speaks to us, and then to be able to respond to the word of God, despite our experience, despite that experience. Any comments here from the panelists on, on that principle?
1: I almost regret that last verse. One of the problems for me of the Gospels is that the miracle stories work. They do enclose a great multitude of fishes. Um, Peter's Simon's action in putting down the net as a matter of faith, as a matter of trust, uh, gets told as... And then it worked. And the, our real life experiences, it doesn't always work. And that we still should put down the net. But that is a harder lesson to learn.
3: That's a great, great point, Chris. And, and I don't, I mean, I'm sure that panelists, um, you all felt some measure of that pain. I know I have, right, at, at um, trying to say yes to what, we, what, we, what, we, what we're trying to discern as the word. Nothing does not go quite as we anticipate. But I will say, whenever I have tried to do this, if nothing else, if nothing else, I felt the affirmation from the Lord who saw my good efforts and who turned them to my benefit in time, if not immediately. I've seen this again and again in my life, um, whether it be in an ecclesiastical context, a familial context a work-related context, the Lord will see my efforts and turn it to my good eventually for trying to do, for trying to respond affirmatively to the word. I've not had quite this kind of load of fish, but I have been blessed enough to see um, that the Lord is mindful of me and of many others that I've seen I try to, to respond in that way. But but your point, Chris, is good. We don't usually see fruits this obvious and this immediate. Other comments here?
2: I just Let's go to the next slide. This...
3: Oh, Katie, please, yeah.
2: Oh, maybe it goes back to as well um, in the moment when the man is healed. I think all of us know that Jesus would heal all of us. But once again, like Chris said, but he doesn't always intervene and heal. That's right. At least not immediately and not in obvious ways. That's right. But again, you know, turning towards him, even if you're not healed immediately, what what does that nonetheless affect? Um,
3: That's great. And turning towards that nevertheless. Good. Next slide um, there, Mike, if you would. Verses 10 and 11 here are really good in this passage. Um, Jesus said unto Simon, fear not. From henceforth, thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. You know, the kinds of people that Jesus tends to love in the New Testament are those who acknowledge their sinners. When when they bring in the draft of fish, verse eight, when Simon Peter saw it, he he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, right? Those who know that they are um, fallen those who know that they are imperfect, those who know that they are failed in many respects, um, but nevertheless seek to follow the Lord's word and who who hazard the faith to step out and try to do this or let down their nets in some way. These are the ones the Lord loves. And those are the ones to whom he says, fear not, and henceforth thou shalt catch men. Great metaphor, catch men. It's not a little about catching fish. But Lord takes what's familiar to them, fishing, and turns it to some other purpose in Him, right that I find really profound. We're almost out of time. I want to, I want to do a couple more things. If you go to the next slide, um, Mike, if you would. And next slide, and then one more. So John 1: When I was uh, uh, back off my mission, fresh back I mean, before I transferred to BYU, as a student at UC Irvine most important class of my life was a year-long dramatic literature class, drama 40A, 40B, and 40C. I was a drama major. When in a drama major, came out an English major. Um, and I remember our professor making a point about Greek tragedy, about the importance of the idea of an overarching rational order, the logos, the logos, which is a Greek word meaning word, but also means something deeper than this word, which is why I love this passage in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, in Greek, the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Christ as logos, there's there's an allusion here to Genesis 1, right, That, that, that God's fake, and, the, and, and, and said, let there be light, and there was light. Here's this John inserting Christ into that fundamental creation narrative. But there's a great way that you described it. beginning was this word, the word spoken to be light, but also the word that is Christ, right? Um, by him, all things were made. You know, Christ for me, and for all of us, I imagine, uh, is the one through whom, the only one through whom Anything can make sense. Um, Christ is the one that can take all things that work and explain why they worked. He can take all things that did not work and make them come to work, whether now or in a little time or eventually and in eternity. Christ is the one that gives an overarching logic and order, logos, to our lives, to our being. If I may, I'm just going to close with a testimony that comes in the next three slides, an excerpt from this book I, I, I wrote, Life to the Whole Being. Forgive me for ending on this note. But it captures, I think, fairly um, uh, incisively what I mean by this. Let me, I'll just read these next three slides. So, Mike, you want to follow me as I go along. Um, nothing is as unthinkable, as impossible, as the prospect of the resurrected Jesus. Nothing so radically revolutionizes our conception of life. We are ourselves because we are not ourselves only. Before we draw our first breath, arrive at our first thought, perform our first act, we are already Christ's, and his singular life means that our lives become multiple, raised to more glorious and ultimately resurrected versions of themselves. In the light of Christ's redemption, our lives acquire motion, They change, whether instantly or through a slow, gradual process. What was sick is made well. What was wounded is healed. What was wrong is made right. What was confused becomes clear. My conviction of Christ's resurrection and all it promises is inseparable from my experience of the church. The church is not God. It's more more like the tomb where I come to pay my devotions most literally in taking the sacrament in memory of Christ's sacrifice. So often I've experienced the emptiness of that tomb as the source of frustration, not yielding exactly what I seek. But when Christ calls to me through the Spirit, he usually does so from there. Why is this? Why does Christ speak from within the shadow of the church? Partly, I imagine, it's a matter of context. For just as the tomb's emptiness provided meaning to others regarding the risen Lord, so church doctrines, ritual practices, and covenants lend shape, meaning, and purpose to our pulsations of spiritual experience. They move belief in the direction of understanding. Think of the characteristics of spiritual experience. Feelings of connectedness, transcendence, vitality, ultimacy, all intensely personal. It's that personal quality that evokes from me the presence of a distinctive being, the Spirit of God. So my religion teaches me to label such experiences. And that teaching rings true. It enlightens my understanding. For to feel the Spirit to any degree, whether intensely or subtly, is to enjoy the presence of a member of the Godhead, it is to be brought at least partly into God's presence. And this, in turn, is where I most fully discern the presence of Christ. One last slide. For it is Christ's sacrifice that reconciles me to God. Without Christ, there would be no spiritual experience. To have any spiritual experience, whether directly religious or simply in feeling a sense of greater connectedness, radiant vitality, transcendent purpose, sacred presence, or ultimate meeting, is ultimately to be the beneficiary of Christ's atonement. No one cometh unto the Father but by Christ. Before we move or act in accordance with a spiritual prompting, whatever that prompting may be, our mere awareness of the Spirit's subtle impulsions is already a witness of Christ. To feel the Spirit is thus to experience conversion, even if we cannot yet conceptualize it as such. Who Christ is and why he is necessary, these are doctrines the Church teaches, doctrines the Lord reveals through the Church. Does the Church answer all my questions? No, but my experience there, the spirit there, the way the Lord communes with me there, moves me there, has a way of suspending many of these questions because it helps me understand something more fundamental. What does it mean to have a spiritual experience? That is to feel the spirit. That is to know vividly that Christ is risen. That's my testimony. Um, I'm so grateful for this gospel of repentance that is embodied, personified in the person of Christ. Um, uh, it's it's a, a long process of change for me, uh, one that's very much ongoing, uh, but I'm grateful for the chance to try to continue. And thank you to all those who were on the Zoom call this morning. And thanks to the panelists uh, for great insights. Uh, love you all. Have a good Sabbath day.
1: Thank you, Matthew, uh, um, and can I ask to offer a closing prayer?
4: Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this Sabbath day, for the opportunity we've had to be able to commune with each other, to be able to discuss um, deeply and carefully the words that we are blessed to have within the Gospels. We are so very grateful for thy son. And for the gift of thy spirit, we pray, especially this morning, that um, that thy spirit may descend like a dove even um, in our troubled world, that we would be able to have a greater measure of peace and a um, more careful remembering of promises that thou has made and promises that we have made with thee to seek to. Bear one another's burdens that they may be light and to mourn with those that mourn. And we pray that we might know how to act in faith and in kindness and in love indeed act like thy son, uh, to be able to, to fulfill those promises with thee. We pray for the spirit that we have felt here to continue to bless and to enlighten the uh, remainder of our meetings for this day. And we pray that we may be able to know, um, more fully for ourselves, that um, Thy Son indeed has risen. And we love Thee and say these things humbly and gratefully in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts.
1: Dialogue Podcast Network.